So David is yep. um, is going to tee up a, something very nice for us. It seems as if we've got a heavy hitter interview right off the bat. So David, we'll, uh, we'll hand you the microphone and you take it away. Tell us what we've got in store for the listeners. Yeah, very exciting to uh, announce our guest for this week's episode, who is Jerry Buting. Uh, and for anyone who has watched uh, Making a Murderer on Netflix, Jerry Buting was... Um, Stephen Avery's uh, defense attorney in his original trial. Um, so a great interview coming your way. Um, just a great legal mind, someone who uh, has a lot to say about the criminal justice system as it is, exists now, the use of experts, and I use experts in air quotes, um, in criminal trials, um, and just an all-around great guy and friend of the show. So uh, we will uh, we'll, we'll pivot to that right now, and we'll tee up that interview. All right, uh, I have the pleasure of welcoming uh, welcoming our guest for this week's show. Uh, his name is Jerry Buting. He is a he was the criminal defense attorney for Stephen Avery in Making a Murderer. He is the author of The Illusion of Justice. Uh, he is a co-founder of the Center for Integrity in Forensic Sciences. Um, most of you will have seen his face uh, before if you have dipped into any of the uh, crime documentaries on Netflix. Uh, Jerry, thank you very much for joining Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you. Good to be here. Awesome. So, I mean, first off, making a murderer, I think it would probably be an understatement to say that um, it had a tr it was tremendously popular. How did that impact uh, your life? What's changed for you since that documentary came out and since the Stephen Avery, since the, the Avery case? Well, you know, it's interesting. It had a phenomenal impact uh, on criminal justice and, and the whole uh, conversation about criminal justice reform. And, uh, you know, my life has changed in other ways, uh, in some ways, not so much. So I am still a practicing criminal defense lawyer. I uh, do mostly, um, well, it's about 50-50 appeals and trials. And, um, but I'm also, um, also, I wrote a book and I've been, uh, you know, had the opportunity to travel really all over the world and, and speak to audiences about um, the issues that were raised in making a murderer. And I talk about in my book, which are the flaws of criminal justice, not just American criminal justice, but really um, most criminal justice systems around the world. And that's been a real privilege um, for me to be able to do that. And I've enjoyed that very much. So of course, in, in this, uh, shelter in place time during the, the pandemic. Uh, I'm not doing any of that, but it, um, Zoom meetings and like everybody else. Yeah, yeah. So in that transition, kind of as the documentary picked up steam, was it weird for you to start to get noticed in public? I can only assume that all of a sudden people would recognize you immediately or maybe even approach you for pictures or autographs. Uh, was that kind of like a new phenomenon that hit you to take you by surprise? Yeah, all of the above. I mean, it, it, uh, it was very weird uh, to be, you know, hailed walking down the street, Jerry, you know, come, come over and want to do pics or um, just even 
talk about the 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 series was was really a you know incredible phenomenon. Now, thankfully, that has has finally worn off. I can walk most places without being recognized. I do still. Uh, funny enough, in, in airports, often is where people will approach me and say, "Are you that lawyer that was on Making a Murder?" But um, so you know, that was a that was a sort of a lot of awkward moments at the beginning. But then everybody was good natured about it, and so we, both Dean and I, we we Dean Strang, my colleague in the in the documentary and in the case, um, we both had to deal with that kind of uh, phenomena, but. Um, we, bo we both found that people were very generous and interested in carrying on the conversation. And that's why we both together and individually continue to do uh, public speaking. And so I, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You let, I'll let you take it from here. Very good. Um, so I wanted to dive into a lot of the reform work that uh, you've been involved with. Um, this has been very interesting um, from the point of view of our organization, Consumer Choice Center, uh, just because I believe we're interested in many of the same topics. Um, so we're talking about the Center for Integrity in Forensic Sciences, and you've been thinking and talking a lot about the evidence that's presented at trial, how things are brought there, um, who's able to be an expert, um, how testimony is allowed into court. You know, if you could just tell us the the kind of origin story of this this organization, what inspired you to do this, and and sort of um, maybe sure. any successes you have or uh, things that you'd like to accomplish in the future. Sure. So um, really, after the exoneration cases started piling up, um, mostly from DNA exonerations in the 90s and into the 2000s, people began to study those cases and see, well, what went wrong? Why were people wrongly convicted in those cases? And um, what they discovered is there's a lot of different causes, but approximately half of the, the exoneration cases that the Innocence Project in New York dealt with um, had as a, a major component, if not the most important part of the evidence in the case, was flawed or just simply wrong forensic science, forensic evidence. And um, what, we, what the studies have shown is that, you know, we are largely illiterate science um, population in America. I mean, you know, we are, lawyers are, judges are, jurors are. And so when people would come into court with uh, purported expertise in some kind of forensic discipline, forensic science discipline, um, they were typically deferred to by both the jurors, the judges, uh, and the lawyers. Defense lawyers often didn't challenge certain types of evidence because they, they thought it was um, unchallengeable, basically. And we have since found, though, that many of those types of evidence, that, many of the type of forensic evidence that are presented in court um, are really junk science. And that would be true in criminal cases as well as civil cases, although probably more prominent in criminal cases because the uh, attorneys on both sides really don't have as much time and um, to sort of develop their own piece in a particular discipline. So um, after Making a Murder came out and we, we saw that there was much more of a public interest in uh, reform of the criminal justice system, uh, my colleague Dean Strang and I and uh, Professor Keith Finley at the University of Wisconsin Law School 
um, who was also the founder of the Wisconsin Innocence Project, decided to form a nonprofit, the Center for Integrity in Forensics Sciences, um, which is the only nonprofit in the country that is dedicated solely to improving reliability of forensic evidence in our courts. And, um, you know, the public who watches shows like CSI or NCIC has a misperception that, that science can prove definitively guilt or innocence in almost every case, that there's this little bit of evidence or all you gotta do is turn on the blue light and you'll, you'll find this little scrap of trace of evidence that's going to prove one way or the other uh, whether the person is guilty. And um, it's, it's just not true. It is just absolutely not true. And uh, you know, so probably two of the, the most obvious ways in which that uh, uh, flawed evidence has come in has been through bite mark identification and microscopic hair comparison analysis. We'll just look at the latter real quickly. So the FBI, to their credit, about three or four years ago, decided to go back and do a study, a random study of about 268 of cases, that, cases in which their experts testified. And they went back to look at the transcripts to see how their experts testified. And they found shockingly that about 95% of the time, their experts presented um, flawed or overstated conclusions that just weren't borne out by the science. And, um, you know, nine, and those are the FBI analysts that you would think would be the best and the brightest. And yet there are uh, somewhere in the order of 90 to 95% of the criminal cases that are prosecuted in this country are done by state level um, prosecutors and state level crime labs, most of whom were trained by the FBI in this microscopic hair comparison analysis. And what we found time after time after time, when the experts would come into court and they would pull one uh, you know, hair from the suspect's head and compare it to a hair that is at the crime scene under a double field microscope, and they would, they would make uh, an opinion about whether or not the, they're not supposed to do this, but often whether or not there was a match. Um, later, DNA tests on those hairs proved the exact opposite, it excluded the defendants when in fact the, the microscopic hair comparison testimony had included them. So, um, so in 2009, the National Academy of Science issued a really groundbreaking study of all of the forensic science disciplines in use in America at that time. And they came out with a lot of recommendations and ultimately they concluded that none of the forensic disciplines with the exception of DNA had ever been scientifically validated where you can, you can demonstrate uh, you know an error rate and reliability and um, replicable test results it had never none of these disciplines including fingerprints including ballistics all the things that people think are conclusive none of it had ever been subjected to a rigorous science validity test and or process and so um, they made a lot of recommendations, but all of these individual disciplines, the, the uh, fingerprint people, the tool mark people, um, the blood spatter, you know, all of these different disciplines have their own little organizational bodies. And, not, and with the exception of fingerprints, almost none of them have done much 
in the way of going back to follow those recommendations even 10 years later. And so we decided that, and one of the reasons that they haven't, frankly, is because of political difficulties that they had. Um, most of, in fact, nearly all crime labs are organized under the uh, justice departments of their states. So they're either within a law enforcement agency, a police lab, or they are under the Department of Justice for the state of Wisconsin or state of North Carolina, um, BCI, I think it is, in North Carolina. And so um, th there's an inherent conflict in that these lab scientists are not truly independent, even though they come into court and testify as if they are. So we decided that it would be not a, a good idea to come up with an independent body funded by non um, political sources generally that uh, that could go where science takes us, um, whether it helps the prosecution or whether it hurts the, uh, the prosecution, helps the defense. Um, we would try and do what we can to um, get these disciplines examined to see if they, they warranted any kind of use in court as being a scientifically valid and reliable piece of evidence. And so the first thing we've done, we've done is we've got a, um, uh, one of the first classes, if not the first class in the country, where we actually have law students in a clinic together with graduate students in the biosciences. They're studying together, um, they're learning forensic evidence together. You know, one of the things that, that always strikes me as lacking in, in most law schools, we have a whole year long course, typically on evidence, hearsay rule and those sorts of things, but very little education about what forensic evidence is, how it's admissible, how you challenge it, when you should challenge it. And, and so um, what we're trying to do is implement that at the, at the very beginning of people's careers so as they become lawyers, as they become forensic scientists, they have a better grounding in, in what's the right way and what's not the right way to introduce this evidence in court. Yeah, and uh, so I mean, obviously that's extremely important for them as advocates to have a better understanding. Kind of on that note, uh, what are some of the more egregious examples that have been passed off in your eyes um, as science or forensic evidence? I know you've mentioned things like bite marks or hair comparison samples. How far astray have we gone in terms of what has been at least brought forward or even maybe in some cases led to a conviction of someone that was, in your view, totally bogus? Well, you know, it, it goes a lot of different ways. So, um, and it's continually evolving. So um, there's things like tool mark evidence. So a lot of people would, you know, they, they think that you can always conclusively determine if a bullet or a shell came from, you know, this particular gun, say the defendant's gun and no other gun in the world. Um, they use that kind of testimony in the Stephen Avery case, as a matter of fact, even though the, the rifle that they, they claimed this, the one bullet that, were, uh, that was at issue came from was the most popular 22 rifle produced in the world, millions and millions of them. And the problem is that the so-called science of that, those opinions were based 
many, many years ago, they were more valid than they are today. It used to be that, that uh, barrels were hand bored and that they had these sort of unique individual microscopic striations inside the barrels that then would be transferred to a bullet that's spiraling out of it when it's propelled out. Um, but for decades, firearms have been mass produced to precision so that they are all exactly alike if you have the same class gun. Uh, now, with wear and tear, they will uh, develop a some unique characteristics, but so few um, that it is really misleading for experts to come into court and say, this bullet came from that gun and no other gun in the world. And then when you ask them, well, okay, well, what's your error rate? Uh, it's a common term that scientists understand. They say, we have no error rate. Well, not, nothing has no error rate. Um, and yet that, that's what you often see. Now, it's, it's being applied now. Let's, let's move forward a little bit. Um, more recently, some experts have tried to say that they can determine a trash bag that was found, let's say, at, the, at the, the scene of a crime, and that they can compare that and state that it came from the same lot, the same time off of the the um, uh, yeah, you know, out of the, the manufacturer's plant as trash bags found in the defendant's house. Um, when these things are mass produced and do not have any of those kinds of unique characteristics. Um, the Casey Anthony case in Florida, um, which was an acquittal, but they went so far as to have an expert say that he could somehow determine the fumes of a corpse in a trunk months after the, the body was supposedly in the trunk. And you know they come into court with a straight face and they try and sell this stuff. Now, um, when I say it's constantly evolving, now we have digital uh, forensic evidence that is becoming, it's very sophisticated. And they, you know, it, it started maybe with cell tower triangulations and um, uh, you know, overstating what they could do, that they could pinpoint a phone within 10 meters or something like that. Um, so it's, you know, it's a constantly evolving um, issue as, you know, science is not going away from the courts. Science is increasing in every case, in civil cases, in criminal cases. And we just have to do a better job of making sure it's reliable before it's presented to a jury in particular, but also to judges. You're listening to Consumer Choice Radio on the Big Talker, 106.7 FM. We're speaking with Jerry Buting. Uh, one question I wanted to bring up is essentially how science has kind of changed the relationship between judges uh, and attorneys. You, you know, you mentioned that before. Uh, before, you know, judges are seen as the umpire. You know, they're there, the referee, to make sure just the rules are follow and at times will uh, provide direction to the jury or in, in some cases will provide the final judgment. Has the kind of growth of the industry of uh, some of these science experts or expert witnesses, has that kind of changed the dynamic uh, in the courtroom? Has it sort of shifted power away from judge and jury, or what does that dynamic look like? Well, it's a good question. You know, it, it has, I think, changed the dynamics in the courtroom quite a bit, and not really in the way that the Supreme Court anticipated when they they last grappled with the, the issue, which was in the Daubert case, 
um, where, where they tried to make the judges be gatekeepers of forensic evidence that um, and therefore screen out the, the, the type of evidence that's too unreliable to even present to a jury. Problem is that um, there really is not a lot of good training for judges who used to be lawyers. And frankly, a lot of guys go to law school because we're not good in math and science. <laughs> and, you know, we're more vo verbally directed and um, scientifically hampered. And so um, there is one organization that's, uh, I believe has its office now based in North Carolina, the National Center for State Courts, um, that is starting to train judges in science more so that they can understand what it is they're really having to rule on. Um, and there's, you know, there's soft sciences too, like psychological sciences, which become very important in, in death penalty cases, for instance, where we're trying to, they're trying to go back and analyze um, what kind of um, harm uh, the, the defendant experienced as a child and his upbringing. Um, and they're now starting to use functional MRIs um, to determine whether there is actual brain damage, organic brain damage that might mitigate somebody's conduct and perhaps you know warrant a sentence less harsh than the, a death penalty um, and and judges you know have to try and analyze all of this when they when they don't have a whole lot of training so it's a real challenge for them and i think by default what happens is they uh they often try and rely on precedent i mean that's that's the i think the biggest flaw in this whole debate is that the law is always looking backwards to precedent, whereas science is always evolving and moving forward. So, you know, something that might have been a valid scientific uh, premise at one point is later disproven, it's discarded, they move on and they adapt. But when one case 40 years ago rules that bite mark evidence is reliable, um, even though the vast majority of scientists now say otherwise, the courts continue to rely on that past precedent to allow it to be used in courts today. And I, I would just direct your listeners to um, a, a, a new Netflix series called The Innocence Files that is, is on right now, very popular. And one of, uh, it, it deals with about maybe five or six cases from the Innocence Project in New York and other state innocence projects where, um, these gentlemen were all wrongly accused, some wrongly convicted, some of them on death row. And the first couple episodes are really interesting because they focus right on bite mark evidence and in particular um, explaining the history of it, how it evolved from uh, the Ted Bundy case where it was very important evidence um, and then made these forensic odontologists uh, almost, you know, superstar celebrities when they would come into court. Um, so it, it, that's a very interesting series that, that people can learn a lot about some of the, particularly the first few episodes talk about flaws in forensic science. And, and on that note of the Innocence Project and um, innocent people, uh, as I would put it, um, in terms of 
Stephen Avery and Brennan Dassey. Uh, I know, obviously, I watched the the documentary. Uh, I followed it very closely. I've somewhat followed it in the aftermath. What is your take on the future for Stephen Avery and Brennan Dassey? And I say that with my own biases because I certainly fall into the camp uh, of those who who think that they were wrongly uh, convicted. Uh, but where do you see their cases going? Do you think there's any hope for either of them? And I know that they can be treated and are treated in some instances as separate cases. So if you could just walk our listeners through what that looks like for them, I know that would be uh, greatly appreciated. Sure. Uh, there, I do have hope for both of them, although, um, you know, their cases are different. They're in, in different stages right now. And um, people are very frustrated, of course, the, the, uh, the COVID uh, crisis has slowed down the courts, including the appellate courts right now. And that's, that's been dis- disappointing to a lot of people. But um, one of the other things that y- you learn as you look at these exoneration cases is that the length of time it takes for the innocent person, even with a, a good lawyer, to have their conviction reversed is shockingly long. People spend decades in prison um, they litigate cases forever. I talk about one of the cases in my book, um, the case of Ralph Armstrong uh, from Madison, Wisconsin, uh, one of the more liberal, you know, progressive court systems in the state. Um, he spent 29 years in custody, wrongly convicted before we got him out and got the case dismissed. I was representing him on appeal for 15 of those 29 years. It took me that long, almost entire time pro bono. Um, and it's because the, the system is designed to ensure the finality of judgments, even in the face of innocence. So it's been difficult for, for Stephen Avery and Brendan. Stephen's case is still pending in the Court of Appeals. Uh, the state's brief is due in a, about a month. And there's a whole host of issues that are raised there, some of which are presented in the second season of Making a Murderer, but some of which came up even after the filming ended um, that, that involved you know, potential Brady material, you know, evidence that was withheld by the state and the destruction of excul- potentially exculpatory evidence. And so a lot of that's wrapped up in in the Court of Appeals, um, but ultimately the decision from the Court of Appeals, if he wins, will probably just be that he gets sent back to have an actual evidentiary hearing. Not like he would be freed, because the, the primary issues are that, that the, uh, the court trial court denied even a hearing at which the state could challenge their, um, at which the state could challenge the defense um, experts in this defense witnesses and the defense could present them as well to determine whether it warrants a new trial. So um, at any rate, I think that there's a, a, a very good chance that the case will be sent back for a hearing. And then of course, um, we'll have to wait and see how the, the witnesses stack up. Brendan's case is in a different posture because he proceeded all the way through federal court when, when Stephen did not, and he was in a federal habeas status when Making a Murderer season two was uh, filmed. And he, ulti- he won at two levels of federal court, but then ultimately lost on a four to three decision in the Seventh Circuit uh, based in Chicago. 
and then the United States Supreme Court, much to the disappointment of juvenile justice ad reform advocates everywhere, decided not to hear the case. And um, I think that Brendan's case probably troubles more viewers than anything else um, when they watch Making a Murderer because the techniques that were used to interrogate him, uh, a 16 year old boy with mental challenges, limitations, um, everybody was really shocked about. Uh, unfortunately, that happens. It happens all the time. Yeah. So he asked for a petition for, for clemency from the governor. It was denied, but efforts are ongoing for that. If that fails, um, he does still have some other remedies, um, and we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, that was one of the things I remember watching and sitting there, obviously, Stephen's case is tragic, but then there's that extra layer of um, of just what feels like a great miscarriage of justice when you look at Brennan's case as well, because like you said, um, his limitations or however you frame it, the line of questioning, the from my view, the fact that he's confessing to a crime that there really isn't evidence took place right. other than the final end of... Uh, right. what was a, a obviously a tragic tragic death um, so thank you very much for your insights uh, on that I know our listeners are, are going to love hearing uh, your take on the case and the, the great work that you've been doing um, with this new organization and your kind of ongoing efforts as an advocate um, so at, before we wrap up is there anything or, or anywhere that our listeners should um, look at whether that's Twitter or any organizations that they should follow if they care about this issue and want to learn more about what you're doing in this space. Sure. They can follow me on Twitter at, at uh, jbuting, B-U-T-I-N-G. Uh, but also they can, they can find out a whole lot more about the whole idea of forensic science and flawed forensic science in court. If they go to the website of this organization I mentioned, Center for Integrity and Forensic Science, cifsjustice.org. Um, there's a whole host of information on there that uh, and links to other resources that they can follow. Great, great. Uh, well, thank you again, Jerry, for joining the show. Uh, we hope to have you back uh, at some point in the future, and we hope that you uh, stay safe in, in quarantine for now, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. You too. It was very good chatting. Great. Thank you. Cheers. Right. Thank you, Jerry.